0: Hi, my name is Beth, and I am the host of the Seeking Light podcast. In a world that presents us with growth and challenges, there is tremendous light. And this podcast is a source of light through scriptural insights that I have gained through the years. Come join me as I share light in a world that can sometimes be confusing. Okay, everyone, thank you so much for jumping on the podcast this December 2022. during Thanksgiving we had the opportunity to go down to Eugene and be with uh, my brother and sister-in-law at their home with my other um, Matt's other siblings and gratefully while we were there our, my sister-in-law and brother-in-law Jeff and Ashley invited their friends um, uh, Eric and Sarah over for Thanksgiving now I had met them briefly before, but we had the opportunity to spend a little bit more time talking and in November of 2020, Sarah and Eric found out that their daughter, Brinley, um, had cancer. And it's a rare cancer. Um, Sarah's going to tell you more about it, but uh, it's a neuroblastoma, but it has two or three other types of tumors. So it's rare. And so they received this diagnosis. And over the last two years, um, they have had quite a journey. And I asked Sarah if she would come on the podcast today and share her story and Brindley's story and how they've gone through this as a family and how they've sought light. So everybody get ready, <laughs> Sarah, get some Kleenex. <laughs> so Sarah, welcome, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: <laughs> okay, Sarah. So I would like, I'm going to do things a little bit different. Normally I kind of have you start the beginning of your life so people can kind of get to know your family, but I'm actually, I would love for you to start off with the lead up to what made you take Brinley, what led you to get the diagnosis and how did that all transform? And then we'll kind of go back in reverse. So if you could just start during that time of your guys's life, what was going on and what happened?
1: Okay. So it's actually a little bit humorous. Um, There were probably six months, five to six months before we took her to the doctor that I was having a really hard time connecting with her um, on an emotional level, on a mother-daughter level. She was constantly mean and um, aggressive in the sense that she would get uh, offended easily or really upset easily and that was at the start of COVID. So I felt like her world had just shifted to being home 24 hours a day, being around her brother 24 hours a day. Uh, they're twins and it they're, they're kind of competitive that way, but, um, and then also kind of prepubescent times. So all of these things, I was, I remember calling one of my close friends and talking to my dad and saying, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to connect with her. It was a difficult situation. Um, And then about two weeks before we took her to the doctor, she was complaining of um, double vision. Like she was seeing two of everything. And as good parents do, Eric and I both just said, you need to start wearing your glasses more. You're not wearing your glasses, put your glasses on. Um, And she was wearing her glasses and still seeing double. And so um, I called her eye doctor to make an appointment and they couldn't get her in for a couple of months. And so I had them put us on a waiting list, um, had them make the appointment. And then one day I was watching her eyes She was speaking to me and I was watching her eyes and her eyes started moving inward on its own. And so I called the eye doctor back and I told him this and they acted like that was something important, kind of a big deal, but they still couldn't get us in. So the next day, she was kind of staring at me as I was talking to her and I was thinking in my mind She's not even paying attention to a word I'm saying because she just looked like she was looking past me. Um, And as I was watching her stare again, her eye just shifted right to the inside corner. So I called my eye doctor and I explained what was going on. And one of the first of many miracles is that there was a brand new eye doctor at this office Um, My doctor was out for months, but this doctor had something that day at one o'clock and said, bring her right in. And so um, that's kind of what led up to us um, taking her in. And then when we were at the eye doctor, my husband actually took her and I'd stayed home with the other two kids. Um, And the eye doctor said, She has a swollen optic nerve. This can be caused by a cold and irritation, and so the optic nerve swells, or it can be something more serious. And so um, he thought that the doctor was gonna leave the room and write a prescription for an antibiotic and send us on our way. Um, And he came back in with a referral to the emergency department, with a long list of tests that he wanted done. And he said, you need to go over to the emergency room right now and have these things done. And my husband was shocked, but um, I would say he's a realist by nature, but in, in this whole experience, he's been the optimist. And so he was really shocked to see that he needed to go to the emergency department to have all these tests done uh for our daughter but took her over um and had an MRI and by this time I had found someone to watch our kids so I could go be with them um she had her MRI and and 30 minutes later they came in and when I saw three people walk into the room I knew it was something but The eye doctor didn't say it could be a mass on her brain. He just said it could be something more serious. So I don't know that that was on our radar as a possibility that a tumor would be there. Um, But I knew something was going to be wrong because there were three people that came in. One person was typing on a computer. One person was just observing. And then the doctor couldn't get the words out. And he was really young and um, I'm guessing new there. And he just said, your daughter, well, she, and he kind of stumbled and then he just said, here, I'll read the results to you. And so in a very um, medical terminology way, read that she had a five centimeter by seven centimeter mass um, in the front part of her brain. And told us we would need to go to Portland um, right away for surgery.
0: Wow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What did you feel when he said that to you guys?
1: Oh, goodness, you're going to dig. So, Eric has always been um, like the calm for me when something's going on, um, family wise or, or otherwise, I guess. Um, and immediately when they said brain mass, he fell apart and just started sobbing, um, which scared me, but I just, I just stared at the doctor across the room. Um, and I couldn't break my stare from him because I, I didn't know what to expect, um, or what, what all of this meant. Um, and then I realized, holy cow, Brinley's sitting on the bed over there and no one is holding her. And so I got up and went over and sat by her. Um, and the doctor had explained that An ambulance would be taking us up to Portland um, so she could have surgery. In our minds, that meant right away, today, tonight, as soon as you get up there. Um, But he left the room. And so we were just left to kind of sit there with our thoughts. Um, And then Brinley actually said, does this mean I'm gonna have to have surgery? So she didn't really even comprehend anything that, that, that the doctor had explained to us. And so I didn't know what to say, so I just said, hold on. And I left the room, cried for a good minute, and then went and got the doctor and said, how am I supposed to tell my daughter what we're about to do. She doesn't get it. And so, um, the, the doctor came right back in and he was very good with her and very good at explaining everything. Um, yeah, that's kind of, that was the, the first few minutes after.
0: So, how did you, cause you've got your two, you've got Boyd and you've got Jocelyn at home. And, um, I, I, w- I forgot to have you tell at the time was Brinley 11. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So Brinley and 11 are, are uh, uh Brinley and Boyd are 11 and Jocelyn is how old at this time?
1: She is
0: four, four, So when the ambulance came, did you guys make a decision that one of you would go up and follow in a car or how did you decide how we are going to do this?
1: So, um, we ended up, my husband's very logical. And he said, what's the point of the ambulance? Why does my daughter need to be taken up there in an ambulance? And he said, she, they will know exactly where to take her. They will know um, where she needs to end up while she's there so we just feel like that would be better and my husband said you know it it was um, we were on our way to Portland at probably 10 30 11 o'clock at night so I mean it was later and we just decided there was going to be no harm in us driving and both of us needed to be there so um, we had two cars at the hospital so the plan was Eric and Brindley would wait for further instructions and I would drive home and pack up the kids really quick. And then our friends that lived just around the corner were watching them. So I, um, called her and said, can you bring the kids over in about 15 minutes? And then we were just packed and ready. Um, but the first person I called was my dad and I, just explained what was going on i'm not sure how he understood what i was saying through the the tears and the you know um hyperventilating almost but he just said i said i don't know what we're going to do with boyd and Brinley or boyd and jocelyn and uh we've got to go up there we don't know how many days we'll be up there and he said call ashley and so I hung up, I said, I can't talk to any family members right now. And I know that every single one of them are gonna call us. And so he made sure to to get a hold of family, but I called Ashley and I I explained what was happening. And um immediately she, whatever you need, bring them up here. We'll meet you. Um you know, and, and they can stay for as long as they need to. Um, Which she's always been that way. That's her. (laughs) It it seems like no matter how inconvenient it would be, they've been that way. So, um, so I came home and packed and then Eric and Brinley got home and Brinley just sat on the couch and she was quiet. Um, I think it was probably shock. More than anything. But um, when Boyd and Jocelyn got home, they knew Brinley had been to the doctor. Uh, They knew that she was in the emergency department. Um, And when they got home, we sat them down and uh, I just said, Brinley has a mass on her brain. And As much as Boyd and Brindley fight and bicker like siblings, Boyd just started screaming, no, 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 anybody else but her. Um, Which I'm still grateful for that experience because that shows me that he really does love her. But then we said, you know, go up to your rooms and find something that you can do while you're there, a book or a toy, and then maybe a blanket or a pillow or something that will bring you comfort while you're there. And so um, I went upstairs to help Brindley pack a few things and I could hear Boyd crying in his room. And he was talking and I didn't know what he was doing. He's not, he's normally the kid that you're like, don't forget to say your prayers. And then you don't know if he says them, but I went in there and he was, I'm not sure this is okay to be doing, but he was praying that someone else could have a brain tumor and that it would be taken away from Brinley, um, <laughs> which, uh, which didn't happen, but Uh, We kind of expected that that prayer wouldn't work that way. Um, And then we met Jeff and Ashley in the IHOP parking lot and they had a care package for me already assembled with a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and chocolate and apples. (laughs) Um, And they took our kids without, without any reservations. And Jocelyn up to that point, couldn't be away from me without sobbing. Um, even when Eric would be home with them, if I wasn't there, she was a mess. And that that night, that ended. Um, call it a miracle or just a, a shock of its own kind or what, but she was just fine. And then we made our way up to the hospital that night.
0: And they sent you to OHSU. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. Yes.
0: So when you arrived at OHSU, so for those of you that don't live in the area, it's up on a hill in Portland. It's got kind of a windy drive to get up there. And it's quite the hospital. So when you got there, what happened? Where did they send you? What were some of the feelings and thoughts going through your mind as you're moving about in the hospital?
1: So it was a a weird place to be because it was, by this time, 12 or one o'clock in the morning. Um, And they knew of Brinley, but they didn't, they didn't act like surgery was gonna happen that night. So for me, my um, reaction was adrenaline like let's get this done let's just do what we need to do we'll get through it we just this is what it is and we have to do it and so let's get it over with um so any doctor that came in any nurse that came in i said the emergency room doctor made it sound like we were having surgery tonight and that doesn't sound like that's the case what uh what do you guys have planned and um no, we have to wait for the neurosurgeon to get back to us. And we, so that um, Friday, it was a Friday, was the the next day. And the neurosurgeon came in and met with us. And I explained to him the same thing. We were expecting that this was emergency. Is something going to happen to my daughter if we're sitting here waiting on this? And he said, I've seen her MRI results and we want our A-team on this. This is not something that I'm going to rush through. I need the best of the best here with me. And um, that was another part of, of a miracle for us is that her neurosurgeon had only been in the area for three months. And he had come from Boston and he was, he's like one of the top rated um, neurosurgeons and has just been someone that we absolutely love, um, for many reasons, but Sarah, the,
0: what, what was it that they saw that made them feel like, I mean, of course with any child, I'm sure they want their 18, but what was it on that MRI that caused them to want to kind of take this at a different pace?
1: Um, its size was one of the the big things, and they also needed to do several tests to see the blood flow to the tumor. Um, and it was not ideal. It had a very large um, vessel feeding it. And so they needed to also have a day to do a little procedure um, to, cauterize or plug up um, that vessel so it would stop. Because when they were to remove the tumor, the vessel could, she could bleed out, is how how it was explained to me. So they wanted to make sure that was taken care of. Um, And then also the operating room that they needed, they wanted to be able to watch what they were doing through an intraoperative MRI. Um, so they can kind of observe and make sure they're getting as much of the tumor as possible uh, without getting brain tissue. And that wasn't going to be available until the following Thursday, so a week later. But luckily, in that three three months that Dr. Weiner was there, he had made some connections and some friendships. And the person that was going to have the intraoperative um, MRI machine on Monday was willing to switch him. So he ended up um, doing the surgery on Monday. So we were there for four days doing tests and prepping and making sure everything was in place before they did the surgery.
0: And how was Brinley feeling? Was she quiet? Was she asking you questions? What was that like for her?
1: I don't think it was real to her. She um, she would go through waves of quiet and um, her funny, quirky, silly self. Um, it was the day before, Halloween was on a Saturday that year. And so all of the nurses and everyone um, observed it on Friday. And so they had, because it's a children's hospital, you know, they had all of the nurses dressed in costumes would come around and entertain them. And then they had, um, reverse trick-or-treating because it was COVID. So they had the kids hang a bag on their door and then they would come put candy in it and things. So there were things that kept her spirits up for sure, um, the funniest thing and the biggest thing, her focus, all of her focus was on getting home to her bed because she had just gotten this new full-size four-poster bed or four-post bed. And we had just put new sheets on it and gotten it already. And she didn't get to sleep in it. And so her whole thing was, I just want to get home. You know, The morning of the surgery, she said, let's just do this let's get it over with so i can go home to my bed you know so uh really that was her her focus and her her it was a roller coaster of waves i still think that the shock of it all um kept her from really sinking
0: of what was going on yeah so when monday comes around what was that morning like for you
1: Oh so I it it might be a bit extreme, um, but I kind of relate it to um taking a lamb to the slaughter or thinking of when was it Isaac that was taken up and gonna be sacrificed? Um Before the surgery, you know, they have to go over all the risks. And death was one of them. Um, Another one was, if we take her tumor and we get too much and end up getting brain tissue, she might have zero personality, zero um, characteristics. She might just... Not have a sense of humor and not laugh, and those were two of the things that I cherished most about her. And so going into it that morning, we tried to be happy and bubbly and put on a brave face for her um And that worked, and then you know they give her the medicine to help her kind of loosen up a little bit um. And so she was just ready to go, but it ended up being about a 13-hour surgery, um, and it was a year of waiting as her parents just pacing hallways and eating because that's what time it was, but not because we were hungry and you know just walking everywhere, trying to pass time for her.
0: So when she came out, um, now this is all during COVID. So there were, especially here in Oregon, there were a lot of restrictions, especially in um, uh, hospitals and medical facilities. Did, were you able to go and see her right away? And what were your first impressions when you saw her?
1: Mm. So we weren't able to see her right away and this is something that I still kind of struggle with but I'm working on um we had gone to the PICU uh to the room that they were going to bring her to when they had gotten her closed up and everything the surgeon had already spoken with us and said things went well we won't know anything until she wakes up but You know, I can tell you that I got at least 85% of the tumor with a surety Um, and, and possibly all of it, but I can promise you 85%. Um, she won't be awake for, for hours. So why don't you guys go, um, the Ronald McDonald house wasn't running at that time because of COVID or they were very limited. And so the hospital put us up in a hotel and said, why don't you guys go get some sleep? Um, And I said, I'll sleep here sitting up in a chair. I'm not leaving if my daughter's going to wake up. I need to be here when she wakes up. And they promised me that she would not be awake uh, before I got there that day. And so I went to the hotel, and I slept. And at five thirty, I got a call that Brinley was awake and asking for me, and that broke my heart um, because the worst thing about it was that she was scared. She had just been through this big ordeal, and I wasn't there. Um, so I don't even think I got dressed. I think I was in pajamas zoomed up to the hospital we were at the bottom of the hill um and got in there and right away I could tell that Brinley was there that her sense of humor and her spunk I could tell was there because she um she wasn't supposed to be intubated still but she was intubated and she couldn't speak because of it so she was Snapping her fingers at the nurses and showing them, like with her fingers pinched as if she was holding a pen, you know, I want to write. And all of her things were, get this tube out of me. When do I get this tube out? You know, um, my throat hurts, or she was able to just express everything. We still have those notes because it's something that shows who Brinley is. Uh, but we um she did look a little scary um just with swelling and she had um, a bandage from ear to ear going across the top of her head. That was the incision size. The dog <laughs>
0: yeah your dog wants to talk. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh So seeing her was a little bit of a shock to your system?
1: It was, it was a little bit of a shock, but I think um, the relief of it being over and seeing that she was okay was greater than the shock. And so it didn't matter.
0: And can you tell the audience, uh, because I saw Brindley, so I know, but can you share with them? Um, this the size of her incision and kind of where it goes on her on her head
1: yeah so it's um an ear to ear incision over the top as if someone was wearing like a headband kind of right in that same area um and they do a a wave incision so that when hair grows back hair won't grow on a scar. And so if they did just a straight cut, then she would have a visible straight line of no hair. So they did a a wave cut so that when her hair comes back, it will kind of smooth it out. So it it covers it. Um, And she had hair down to just past her shoulders at that time. And so it was easy to, to pull it once her incisions healed, it was easy to kind of, you know, pull it back in a ponytail or, or whatever. And you just really didn't notice it.
0: When they finished the surgery, had they done, what did pathology, what did they find? And then what did they tell you were your next steps in this process?
1: Mm. So that was almost as uh, challenging as waiting for the surgery to happen because every day, well, and, and pediatric oncologist came in and said, uh, introduced himself and said, I hope that I don't have to come back in here and meet you guys again, but just in case, I want you to know that I'm here and um, that I will be watching over Brinley Um, just to make sure, you know, we get the pathology results and, and if they come back that she needs something, I'll help you guys with that. And, um, it was another four days of waiting for any kind of pathology. Um, her surgery was on a Monday and we went home on a Thursday and they told us Thursday morning, you might go home before you get results to this and we didn't feel great about that but we didn't have a better option um so on um we had already been discharged from the hospital but we were packing up things and dr miller and our social worker and a nurse came in and immediately i knew what that meant um but they They asked if they wanted us to visit with them in front of Brinley or in a different room. Um, Knowing what we know now, we would have chose differently, but we chose to go in a different room and talk with them about the results. So
0: now, Sarah, um, what makes you feel like saying now hindsight, what? Why now would you stay in the room with Brindley there? What?
1: Yeah. Um, Because she still two years later, um, when she really thinks about everything and takes it in, she hates that she was in the room sitting by herself with no one else there to be with her, knowing that her parents were listening to results that were either really, really good news or bad news. And she says that she was going to learn the information either way. So she should have just been involved in it. Um, And it, it wouldn't have been so hard on her, but it was like, I knew that if it was bad news, I didn't want her to see me react. I'm usually a pretty stable, even keeled person, but I've never had someone tell me my daughter has cancer before either. So I didn't know what to expect. Um, and so for that, I'm, I'm grateful that I wasn't in the other room cause it allowed, or that I was in the other room because it allowed me to cry and ask questions that were scary and not worry about how it would affect Brenly.
0: And what did they tell you?
1: So they told us that she had cancer, but they didn't have any more information than that. They said the tumor was um, the opposite of benign now. I'm blinking Malig- on
0: malignant. It.
1: Malignant. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, they told us that the tumor was malignant, but that's all the information they had. And I just remember hearing that she had cancer and Eric and I were both staring at the person who said it and nodding and just looking at them nodding. And then they watched our faces start crying. And the social worker said, it's hitting you, isn't it? You know, like, oh, you're you're comprehending it now that it's sunk in. Um, and I just lost it. I don't even really remember what, um, Eric said at that point, but shortly after that, he stood up and said, someone's got to go be with Brinley. And so he and Dr. Miller, the oncologist went to go talk to Brinley and, um, I stayed in with the social worker and started sobbing. And I said, I cannot bury my child. And she said, that's not what we're asking you to do today, Sarah. You're not, you're not doing that today. Um, and she kind of walked me through those feelings a little bit.
0: Now, is it normal for the hospital to have a social worker that is with families um, in these types of situations?
1: Yeah, usually they will assign um, a social worker that checks in with you um, right at the beginning for very often, once a week, um, for a while, and then She'll they'll kind of leave it up to you um, as you need, but they're there to kind of fill any needs that you have from where you're going to stay or food or gas cards or that kind of thing. And then um, they're not a therapist, but if you need one, they're able to help
0: you find them. And that was on Thursday and you, they had you go home. Why did they have you leave? Was it because they needed more time to figure more things out?
1: Yes. They, it, it was a very long process. So that was November 5th and they don't just do the pathology in a lab at that hospital. They sent samples to St. Jude's and they sent samples to the Mayo Clinic and all of these different places. I don't know if that's common. Um, It was because of the rarity of it but they um, sent it off to several places and on November 27th um, we got a call with a final diagnosis which I still feel is questionable. Um, they, they can pinpoint it down. It's really interesting. They do um, essentially a 23andMe type genetics on it um, so that they know exactly what type of chemo it would take to fix or is most likely to fix the type of cancer And so we didn't get that until the end of November.
0: And what did they tell you it was?
1: So they told us it was a neuroblastoma with, um, let's see, an epithelial neuroblastoma with embryonic characteristics, not otherwise specified. And I have no idea what most of those words mean.
0: (laughs) So what did they tell you needed to happen next? What was the next step?
1: Um so they said we they gave us the option of radiation in Portland or radiation in Seattle. And the difference between the two is that photon radiation which they offer in Portland kind of they radiate the spot but then it kind of grows outward to the um the amount of radiation you get expands so they can't guarantee that they're just hitting one spot and the risk with where it was in Brindley's brain is that that type of radiation could cause more damage um and then the proton radiation in Seattle and there's only at that time, I think it was six or seven places in the country. I might be mistaken on that, but I believe it was in the country at the time doing proton radiation. And so we went to, uh, they, they told us on the 27th, we need you in Seattle on the 29th for a consult um, and to get measured and they make a radiation mask and do all of these things. Um, So we, I remember the the head nurse telling me, from this point on until Brinley's out of treatment, your life is going to be scheduled in pencil. So things can change, things can um, be, you know, be canceled or added to, manipulated, so you're just going to need to be ready for that. And we witnessed that right at first, it was. November 27th we got the call to be there on the 29th while we were in Seattle we got a phone call that on December 3rd she would need surgery to have a port placed and then her and I were going to move to Seattle four days later to start the treatment and so it was all this big rush of how are we going to do this all on our own by ourselves and the one thing I will say um, learning from this is you never know how big your village is until you need that village. And then, then things just fall into place and you're taken care
0: of. So did the order of you guys moving there, you and Brenly, did all of that fall into place? And then how did the stuff at home, like the kids with Jocelyn and Boyd, did Eric stay home? How did that all work?
1: So miraculously, really, um, we had started. It was suggested by one of the, uh, probably our caseworker, to start a social media page so that we didn't have a hundred people a day calling us and asking us things. And um, we had posted, "This is the plan, as far as we know." So one of our friends um called us and said hey we have this extra car it's really small it gets great gas mileage you guys are welcome to take it to seattle and then that same family knew um had friends in seattle with a basement apartment so they called us and the friends said look it's nothing great there's not heat in it you would need to bring a space heater we have two really loud dogs, so we're not sure how Brinley will feel about that, but you're welcome to it. And then we we considered that, um, but then a day later, we got another phone call that a woman happened to have a spare condo in Seattle. She had recently gotten married and moved in with her husband, and this condo was available to us. Um, and And... If we didn't have that small micro-machine car, we wouldn't have been able to stay at that condo because the garage was so small that we even had to turn the mirrors in on the car to get into the garage. (laughs) Um, But that was a huge blessing. And then as far as um, Boyd and Jocelyn being taken care of, we had been mocking my niece for taking a gap year of college <laughs> um, or a gap couple of years from college. And then, um, she ended up saying, Hey, I can come for the full seven weeks that they're up there. If you, if that's what you guys want. And so she was able to come and just be with the kids for that seven weeks.
0: What a miracle. Yeah. hands what a, down, Everything, everything. Yeah. It just, it shows you God's hand. Like he's for so sure. aware of everything that's going on in our lives, for sure. So you're up in Seattle, and what exactly? So is Brinley going through radiation and chemo, or is it just radiation?
1: So she was doing radiation and um, one dose of chemo a week. So she would go to this proton center every day, uh, Monday through Friday. And then she would, um, go on Wednesdays for just kind of a, Hey, how you doing? Let's get your weight, make sure you're eating. And then a, a quick dose of chemo.
0: And that went on for seven weeks. Mm-hmm. What are some of the things that you experienced as her mother during those seven weeks?
1: Oh boy. Um, It really was a growing experience for me because I hadn't been on my own in 16 years. I had never driven in a huge city before. Um, But it was kind of like, again, just that adrenaline and just I need to be strong for my daughter. I need to um, get get through this and make sure that uh, she gets what she needs and, you know, try to, try to lighten the the load a little bit. Um, we, the a part of our church or, or the, the, ch- the whole church in our area got together and made sure that Brinley had one present to open every single day that she was up there so that she could have something to look forward to after a day of treatment, you know? And um, so that was something that was really fun. There were really hard days where I would tell her she could open two or three of the presents (laughs) or (laughs) um, we would go to a cool mall or things like that. Um, But just, it was lonely a little bit um, because, she was falling asleep really early, or she was um, feeling too sick to really do anything but but lay on the couch. And I wanted to be doing Christmas festivities and making sure that the kids here were uh, getting some of the love from our village of supporters and kind of all of that. but I honestly, maybe survival mode is the best, the best way to put it. We just, just kept going, you know, one foot in front of the next and um, keeping all my T's crossed and my eyes dotted. <laughs>
0: <laughs> when the seven weeks came to an end, what did you head back home? and then wait for more, but what, what were the next steps that they were?
1: So we knew chemotherapy was going to be next. They wanted the radiation to be done and then they wanted to give her six weeks break between any kind of treatment. Um, so we came home adjusted to everybody being under the same roof again and trying to get some sort of schedule. Um, And then we took a trip to Southern Utah to see all of our family. And then uh, we got home on January 20th of 21. And then on March 3rd is when she started chemo.
0: And how long did she go through chemo in March of
1: 2021? So her chemo. Um, schedule was a week a month in the hospital, um, March through August.
0: Up at OHSU.
1: Mm-hmm. And so her and I would go up um, and stay for a week, and she would get her chemo. Um, and then in August, she had, I guess it was September, she had a follow up MRI, and they could see something on her MRI that was uh, changing, but it wasn't changing fast. It was just changing just enough that they thought it could either be radiation changes. A lot of the times radiation will cause scar tissue to develop. Um, And so they didn't know if they were dealing with that or if it was the the tumor bed changing. And so they scheduled another MRI for November, and in November, they discovered that it was enough change to know that it was tumor um, that was back. So um, that would tell them that the chemotherapy, the radiation, I guess the radiation made it so that the tumor didn't grow more. Um, It prevented it from from doing anything but it didn't take the cancer away and then the chemotherapy also kept it at bay but didn't take it away so in January of 2022 she had her second brain surgery um and they removed as much as they could they thought they got enough of it um and so from then, we've got um, a little more left to treat, is, is what they say. And so they started a new chemo that was oral chemo. So she didn't have to go to the hospital. She just took some pills. But they could see that the tumor was changing again. So um, she's on her um, new doses she started taking a couple of months ago.
0: And so where is the tumor at right now? Is it at bay or is it still growing?
1: We haven't had a current MRI at the point that we saw it. um, There were changes, but I guess it would be enough to say that it's at bay more so than it is growing because it's not necessarily getting bigger. It's changing shape. And so that's one thing that they keep an eye on.
0: And do they have an explanation of, or is it just so rare and unique that they're, they're They don't really know because you had mentioned that there were two or three other types of tumors within the tumor. So do they know what tumor that is in the shape changing?
1: That's a really good question, and I don't think I've thought to ask. They um, they've done genetics testing on it as far as if it has to do with family genetics or if it is a fluke thing and it is not genetic. so it is a fluke. Um, but they, uh, my oncologist or my daughter's oncologist um, went to Germany to a tumor um, tumor board convention. So a bunch of physicians get together and talk about brain tumors and the different types of them. And um, as far as I know, this specific doctor from Germany had only seen. Or heard of six cases like hers in his entirety as a professional. Um, whether he treated them or or just heard of them, I don't know that, but um, they just don't have a lot of of information and quite honestly, um, something that's a little discouraging but also a little um, gives me a little hope is that they don't she's essentially a guinea pig for these treatments. So they throw something at her, so to speak, and see how it works. And if it's not working, then they change something until they can say, you know, we found something that works. Um, right now, chemo hasn't been working as well. You know, it's been it's been keeping it from growing, but that's, we wanna see more than that. Um, And so there's a clinical trial that has opened up that she's actually going to be doing um, most likely starting in February where they harvest white blood cells and they train them to attack um, tumor tissue. uh, In Like her own cells will attack the tissue in the tumor bed. And so we did a surgery for her Um, to have a port placed in her um, at the top of her head and it goes down into her tumor bed and so for eight weeks we'll move to Seattle for eight weeks again Um, they will through an infusion in that port deliver her blood cells to her tumor bed and we'll see if that works it's been really successful in other, um, types of cancers and in lupus. And so they want to see what it does for this.
0: Wow. As Brinley's mother, what are some things you've seen in her that have inspired you?
1: Mm. Her spiritual strength, um, her, drive to just get things done. And um, her bravery, she, um, she struggles a lot with having lost her hair and it's been gone for two years. Um, People her age are going to dances and, um, you know, they worry so much about what they look like and their how their hair looks that day. And the girls are constantly playing with their hair and stuff. And she just doesn't have that. So she misses it. Um, but I remember in Seattle when she was losing her hair at the time, for the first time, um, she... I said, hey, whatever is going to make this tolerable for you. If you want hats, I will buy you every hat there is. If you want wigs, we can get blue pixie cut wigs. We can get long red ones. I don't care. We'll just, you know, we'll do whatever you want to do. And I'll never forget, she looked into the um, side view mirror and she said i think i look good like this <laughs> and i said you do you like you rock the bald look you really do she's so beautiful um but she she has that um courage to just like go out and be herself and i admire that a lot in her because i don't um, know that i would have done that do it. <laughs> i
0: know i know well that was you know so impressive to me on thanksgiving it's just her confidence and yeah. just <clears throat> being so um genuine and and not afraid at all just just really confident yeah so how has this experience changed you
1: oh goodness I care a lot less about things that I cared about before uh, that are so minuscule and don't matter. In the can grand you give Can you
0: give things. an example?
1: <laughs> oh goodness, <laughs> I guess um, if I worry a lot about my house being clean and things getting done, but if one of my kids wants to cuddle. I'm going to cuddle and make time for the fun things and, um, you know, things, things like going to school every single day. Not that I'm encouraging truancy, but maybe take a day off and, you know, and that's okay too. Um, another thing is like not telling my kids, um, Hey, you're okay. You're okay. It's okay. You're okay. Like I now find myself saying a lot. Okay. Like if my son gets mad, you have every right to be mad. That's okay. It's okay to be mad. You need to, to express that anger in a healthy way. I can't let you punch your sister in the face, but you can go punch the punching bag or, you know, if you want to be sad, be sad. You you can be sad and that's okay. Um, instead of trying to just make sure and tell everyone they're okay. They're you're okay. You're okay. Cause sometimes we're not, sometimes we need to get out. Whatever's pushed down.
0: Where do you think that you mustered this strength? Where, mm. where do you think it came from?
1: <clears throat> um. I will say a few things on that. So my dad has um, a couple of different catchphrases that if you spend any longer than like 10 minutes with him, you'll hear him say at least one. Um, A lot of the times when I get off the phone with him, like as he's saying goodbye, he'll sing a line to a church song, which is just carry on, carry on, carry on. Um and then another one that he says is it's all good except for the bad stuff and even the bad stuff's not that bad and uh he's kind of that like plucky optimist i guess but um that's kind of how my i was raised i guess is just hey we can get through this the other thing is that experience has shown me that <laughs> we can get through this, that, you know, um, life is going to be hard and we know that, and we know there's going to be challenges. Um, the last two things that I would say are the biggest is, uh, if you're a member of, of my church, then you know about patriarchal blessings, which is something that, um, an elder in the church can give. And mine says that, my whole um spirit, my whole soul is founded on a belief in my Savior Jesus Christ and um, his love for me and for um, and for for the atonement and for our purpose here. And so in my mind. I know in my in my whole being, I know that um, this life isn't what we're left with isn't isn't all that we're here for, that there's more beyond here um, and that the hard stuff is all part of it, you know the other the last thing is that when I get i I don't feel sorry for myself. I feel sad that Brindley has to go through this, but I always tell myself why not Brindley? and why not my family? What makes us so special that we wouldn't have to go through this? Um, I've had friends say, well, I don't believe that God would if there is a God, I don't believe he would put his children through this. And my argument to that is God watched his only son be crucified up on a cross, and he could have stopped that, but he didn't because that wasn't the plan. Um, so I think a lot, of, a lot of just expressing those things to myself reminding myself of those things um and then my life experiences is really just where where I get it and I allow myself to fall apart and to cry if I need to um but we just keep going you know you just keep going
0: and- carry on carry on <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay so um as we come to the end on my podcast first of all thank you so much for um, being so vulnerable and sharing your story because you're still in the process of not really having a final result or answer yet so that can be quite emotional as you can tell I've been crying the whole time. Sorry. (laughs) And then I'm going to be releasing this on December 23rd, two days before Christmas. So I just want to know, the final question is, is how do you, Sarah, personally seek light? And especially thinking about this wonderful time of year, how do you seek light and how will you seek light?
1: So, um, I love serving people from the time I was a little kid, (laughs) my dream, my whole dream was to be a little old lady baking cookies for the kids as they were running home from school down the neighborhood streets to be able to like, come get some cookies. And now I see in the world we live in, that's probably a little creepy, but (laughs) it was very realistic when I was little. Um, and, and I find such joy in knowing that I have the ability to alter somebody's and that might sound a little like prideful or you know but but really it's such a small thing that we can do to um to change someone's day perspective outlook um I this year especially we're going to participate in um the light, the world experience and really focus this season on Christ. Um, because I honestly feel like if I can help my kids leave my home centered in Jesus Christ, um, and his life, then they will be that much stronger and prepared for what's ahead so when I seek light I do it through service I love music and it I love I have a love for um pure things like pure music and pure fun and um I just really feel Like that is light. That's, I don't know how to finish that. I just, I am surrounded by love and by light and by a village of people that um, I feel like put my family at the center and I will never be able to repay that. But I've made a promise to myself that I will spend every day living like I am repaying someone, living like doing that good deed is crossing off what someone has done. Um, for me, the debt that I have for them.
0: Well, Sarah, thank you so much. And I hope that you and your family, Eric and Brindley and Boyd and Jocelyn have a wonderful Christmas. And I really appreciate you doing this interview with me.
1: I'm happy to do it. It's a little therapeutic. (laughs) And thank you very much. I appreciate it.
0: I'm so grateful that you listened to my latest podcast. Please share these episodes with your family and friends. I look forward to being with you again soon. Have a great day.